0: The Pinball Network is online. Launching the Aussie Pinball Podcast. Hello, and yet another Aussie Pinball Podcast coming hot off the heels of the last one, episode 18. And this time I'm joined by a good friend of mine, David Van Es. David's also known as Bunyip, and made his name in the wider pinball community when he worked at Spooky Pinball as head of their graphics and animation, but lately has been dabbling in a new venture, starting up a new pinball company and releasing a new game. In this episode, we find out all about his crazy life as he headed towards where he is now. Starting as an operator, working on the love boat, and then hooking up with the legends of pinball such as Skip B and (laughs) J-Pop, he eventually worked things out, and is now on his way to releasing a legendary new game, I believe, and we'll find out the details of that game now. Thanks to InXS, and David apologises for poking the saxophonist when he was younger. Well, let's hear from David. Hey, 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 hey. So, joining me from, do you have to clap first? Deep in the heart of Texas, <laughs> David Vaness, who we all affectionately rather refer to as Bunyip. Uh, where did Bunyip come from? What's the, what's the name? The origin? Why did they call Bunyip? Was a horrible creature that lived in a swamp.
1: It still lives in a swamp in Australia, mate. Come on like you, now.
0: You are the bunyip.
1: <laughs> well, it, it's always one of those things of Charlie always liked to give nicknames to everyone in the factory over at Spooky. So it's like, well, you're from Australia. What's, you know, what's an Australian creature, Australian monster? And up at uh, Murray River, there was a always, I never actually saw it. I've never actually been there um, to see it. But they had this thing called the bunyip. Now a Bunyip is a mythical creature that lives in you know the water holes in Australia, and it would you know eat the uh, the sheep or anything that would come close to the the, the water banks. And uh, it was like I told him about the Bunyip, and they was like Bunyip, that's it, that's what he. We will have to uh, call call you. So that's literally how I got the Bunyip, and really? for a long, yeah, and for a long time, I had a picture. There's a famous picture. If you just Google uh, scary koala there's a koala meme um the interwebs of it it's all wet like it's being basically pulled out of the water you know i had that that looks like a bunyip to me but
0: so we were born in
1: i was born in the adelaide hills okay. um so the adelaide hills is about 40 minutes from the heart of adelaide and uh yeah i spent majority of my life there in lenswood on the family hobby farm um, we grew. I grew up with all types of animals. My mum would take in any animal that she could. So we've had everything from emus, horses, donkeys, cats, cows, a fox. Basically you know, anything you could it. eat, yeah. Yeah, anything yeah. That we could have. I mean, you know, it wasn't unusual. To, you know, we had emus. You know, you would see kangaroos on the property. You have koalas on the property. So I truly did live in the country. You know, I hated being outside. But I always loved watching TV. So any chance I could get, I would go in and watch TV. Um, And that's where my love for all types of, you know, movies or TV shows I could get my hands on. So uh, that's where, you know, I fell in love with Doctor Who, you know, The Goodies, um, Ray Harryhausen. And then, you know, that slowly turned into watching really bad horror films on SBS Now, most people don't recognize SBS, but I know my Aussie friends would. SBS was the foreign channel in Australia.
0: Always used to stand for Sex Before Soccer or Soccer Before Sex, depending on the scheduling.
1: There you go. But (laughs) on Saturday nights after nine, this guy would come on and he would play genre films from all around the world. That's when I started falling deep into really obscure horror films and stuff like that you, you, you know even they had the a lot of the european stuff at the time but like my mother really fostered she loved fantasy films so one of my earliest memories in fact my first memory of going to the movie theater was going to see clash of the titans in the movie theater Stop was, animation wasn't oh, it yeah uh, yeah exactly right and it was just you know live action with stop animation and that just blew my mind.
0: So you, you finished school, and did you go directly into a career involving movies?
1: This where I would do, dovetail into pinballs. I was always looking for something that was entertaining. So I always went down the path of video games, because you would have the pizza shop, and I would go over to the pizza shop, and I remember seeing my first pinball machine, which was Terminator 2. Um, had Terminator 2 a Judge Dread. We didn't have a lot of money back in those days, so I'd always watch other people play the games. I was always fascinated by pinball machines, but we also would have a Mortal Kombat there and a Street Fighter. And so that's where I started like, oh, this is really cool stuff. Very different. And there were always movies that I loved. That's what attracted me to pinball in the first place. The, it was like the backlash was the attraction poster for the film. So I was like, oh, Terminator 2. I just watched that film. That was amazing. I'd walk up to the pinball machine, and I'm like, oh, I recognize that, and that was in the movie and stuff like that. And then you'd see people interact with it, and it was almost like they were re reliving the movies through the games, right? So this was almost like this is your opportunity to live that part of the movie. So that always fascinated me. So my father was always trying to you know, get me to think of ways to – start a business or do something, you know, something with my life instead of being in front of watching movies or playing video games, which I was always doing. And my father was very much like, you've got to do something with your hands. You've got to do something productive, like computers are not the future. We would go through the, what the, the trade post down in Australia, like going through things you can buy and that. And I noticed there was a video game, you know, tabletop. And my dad was, well, why don't you buy one of those and put it in a pizza shop or something like that? I'm like, oh, that sounds like a really good idea during the summer working for him, I would go through the, the paper and see the different stuff and I'd mark out what I would long. And eventually I'd earn enough money, like $300. I would have to call the person up. Hey, can I come and look at this and tabletop video game? Yeah, yeah, come on down. And we went down there and, and it was a warehouse full of video games and pinball machines and stuff. Um, but I was very much set on the video game because it was in my price point. And as I was looking at it a daddy star wars caught my eye and me being a huge star wars fan i was like there's a pinball machine star wars pinball machine so i said can i look at that and i'll go over and look at it and go well, how much is that and i think it was like eight hundred dollars or something like that and my old man's like you can't afford that like you're not gonna get that look at Tutankhamun. So I went over and looked at Tutankhamun and I ended up buying it and just talking to my dad about, yeah, how are we are going to do this? So, well, you just have to go up to the pizza shop and ask him if they will put it in there, which I did. And I did that. And uh, I started bringing in a little bit of money and my dad goes, Oh, okay. Well, you want to get another one? I'm like, Oh yeah. And I guess he was hard up for workers. So my dad offered me, he goes, well, I tell you what, if you work for me, every dollar you earn, I'll match it to buy another video game and I'm like yeah you okay that sounds good so I started working for my dad and I guess he was keeping track of the money I was saving so I called up the same guy that had the Toon Carmen and I want to come down and buy another video game all right we will see you in the next couple of days and I go down there I really had my eye on that battery Star Wars I go over there I'm looking at it and it's like yeah I think I want this dad and dad goes well you don't have enough money I know you saved like yeah, you know, 150 bucks. The most you're gonna have is 300, and he didn't realize I've been working for my grandmother picking raspberries. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, "No, I've got 400, Dad." And he's like, "What?" I pulled out my cash, and he's like, "Yeah, you little..." I ended up bringing Datteri Star Wars home, and that was where that was my first uh, pinball machine, and it just grew from there. It went how
0: from old? At, How old were you then? 16. Okay entrepreneur well done
1: i'm not bothering about the video games i just want to do pinball machines and i didn't choose my i wasn't like the the uh typical route person like oh you'd buy this pinball machine because it earns this i was like oh data east phantom of the opera dude that's amazing because the backlash was amazing playing the game was horrid and it never (laughs) earned well on location but gosh that was a beautiful looking game um and then the next one was tales from the Crypt because i love tales from the crypts so every movie every pinball machine i bought was based on themes that i love so that was fend of the opera datary star wars tales from the crypt doctor who twilight zone you can see the pattern here. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So it was really being dragged in. The theme was always really important to me because it was taking me back to those moments of when I watched those films. Where I was like, oh, wow, that was something amazing. And then eventually, because I love films so much and I made friends with a guy down there called David Cote. he used to work at a time zone. And I used to say so right next down to my dad's work, he would go off to do something. And there was a time zone. I would just go and hang out down in the time zone because I always have lock-ins. You'd pay your what? 10 bucks and you get locked in for a couple of hours. Um, I would hang out with David code and we'll talk about arcade and pinball machines, but he was a special effects guy. So I was like, you're into special effects. I want to make movies. I want to make movies. So we would just hit up and start chatting away. And then he turned around as was, he goes, Hey Dave, cause there was no film schools in Adelaide at that time. He goes, Hey Dave, there's a stunt Academy opening up in the Queensland gold coast. Why did you go and do that? And I'm <laughs> like, well, that'd be a great way to get into the movie industry. Right? Like I have no experience. I'll go and do the stunt Academy up on the gold coast. It's right next to Warner brothers. Let's see what happens. So I, so like, all right, I'm going to do this. And my parents were always, Dude, they were so open-minded. So that was my first foray into filmmaking. I went and joined the Australian Stunt Academy. I went through that, got my certification. So I've fallen off buildings, hit by cars, lit on fire, fallen off buildings, being shot, punched, you name it. And that was I just sort of that.
0: Saturday night in Service Paradise.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> Nothing um, the Stunt Academy. <laughs> so I went and did that, and I was actually offered an armory job. Um, so while I was at the stunt school, uh, the armorer that would do all the like uh, the Warner Brothers um, Police Academy stunt show, he would do a lot of the armory work for that, but also do the films up there. He offered me a uh, internship to do armory work, which I thought would be absolutely amazing because you know weapons in Australia are not readily available, and here I was being offered a job to play with every type of gun you could think of, plus exp- blowing things up like legally. It was like what more does a teenage boy want? <laughs> you know? Um, so I was dead set. I was dead set to go and do that. Um, but I went back to Adelaide because the, the, the certificate was done and that I couldn't start doing the armory work for another six months. So I went back to Adelaide, Australia, the Australian, um, what was it called? Pride's film school opened up for the first time. And, while i was waiting to come and do this armory work my my friend david co like well why don't you go and join the film school like you've got your stunt academy certificate well go and get the their film and television certificates certificate one and two so like oh, well why not let's go ahead and do that so <laughs> i jumped into that and that's when i got all my formal training in film and television so everything from producing editing writing directing and stuff like that so that's where i really learned all my skills in the film and television and then right after that i went into doing tv commercials uh tv shows pilots doing the Mans when it was in adelaide in in 2000 um anything to get a paycheck so i could a go out with my friends drinking and having a good time and also buy more machines to put on location.
0: So, right, we, we got heavily into movie making in Adelaide, and what did you outgrow Adelaide and have to move to America then, or what was the transition no, overseas?
1: No. So I was doing TV commercials and all that type of stuff, making, and for some reason I was looking in the newspaper, and I was kind of just not happy with everything the way it was going, because we weren't making movies or anything, we were just doing this stuff, because it was in the realm of just making money in the back of the newspaper and in the employment section, it was like, you want to work, you know, film and TV people to work on a cruise ship, Uh seven month contract in the Bahamas. And I'm like seven months in the Bahamas filming people. That sounds pretty darn good. And I was like, I've always been a person like, why not? Like, like what's the worst, what is the worst thing that could happen? Literally within six weeks, I found myself getting a ticket to come over to Miami to work on a cruise ship. Like, it happened really quick. Like, oh, okay, well, this is happening. It's only seven months. It's not, I'm not moving away. So, yeah, I got, found myself in Miami and they started uh, outfitting all their ships with editing stations and video crews. So, if you got on the ship and you had a wedding or event, Carnival would shoot it, cut it, and give it to you by the end of the cruise. So I was part of the first team that was a part of the installation of all the uh, post-production facilities on the cruise ships. I was in charge of, uh, at that time, it was Carnival Ecstasy, where I would run a crew of <laughs> three ship's people. ship's name
0: doesn't exist anymore.
1: No, it literally went out of, it went out of service last October. Ecstasy, and, uh, okay. Yeah, me and my wife, so me and my wife actually met on the Ecstasy. That was one of those...
0: Can, I, can I quote quote that yeah. for the show notes? David right. met his wife while on ecstasy.
1: Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's actually where I met Rebecca. She was a uh, kids camp uh, kids camp counselor. She is an accountant background. So when we left the ship, and uh, it was one of those things of. Well, whoever gets the first job is where you move to. Uh-huh. Um, basically, I had contract work, but not a real job. So her being an accountant, she instantly gets a job. So it was like, well, I'm moving to Houston, Texas. Woo-hoo. And that's how I ended up in Houston, Texas. That's
0: how you ended up in Texas.
1: <laughs> I, I got to Houston, Texas, and I wasn't allowed to work because I had to get my uh, green card and everything else. That's how it works. So as soon as I was allowed to work, I got my first job. What people liked was I could do post-production I knew how to I knew my route self around a post house I knew how to edit they didn't care if I could write or if I could direct or if I could shoot they really liked that I could edit basically I got a post-production job in Boca Raton Florida I went down there for four years and that's actually where we became very comfortable in our life And that's when I decided to start buying pinball machines back because it was like, well, I used to have pinball machines when I was a teenager. So I want to start getting them back. And that's when I started buying old beaters or games that were broken like Tales from the Crypt. I started getting back into the pinball hobby, restoring games and stuff like that. I would get a game, fix it up, restore it, sell it. And I just kept doing that and doing that and doing that. And then... You know, the announcement of Wizard of Oz came around with the LCD, and I was like, "Oh, that's really cool!" And I can see the LCD, and I'm like, "That is where it's going. That's where pinball's going." So I was like, "Well," and I do post production video work. I can help with this stuff. That's when I just started emailing people, just like, "Hey, if you need any help," because that's when you'd find, you know, rec, you know, pinball, yeah. RGD, you know. Yep. 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 And then pin side, I was getting deeper and deeper in the hobby. And I was just like, oh, I can get hold of the actual people that work in the industry. So I just blasted emails out. Conversations would happen. And how I ended up in pinball working was I got hold of a Mr. John Papaduke Jr. And he called me up and said, hey, I'm thinking about making a pinball machine. Would you like to help me doing this? I've got this idea. Like, I want to do a a successor sequel to Theater of Magic, and he goes, I want to do something like, you know, uh, Houdini or like Magic Girl. And like, Theater of Magic was one of my most favorite pinball machines of all time. And I was like, dude, I'm in. You you need someone to help you out with Theater of Magic. Like, you know, something to do with magic. I love magic as a kid growing up. I want, I, I, I want to help. So the whole magic side of things was like, I, I, I need to help you out. I, I've got my day job. I can do my day job fine. Anything I can help you with display work, let's do that. Yeah. Um, so I good started job. working on Magic Girl with him.
0: And he would have paid you well for that.
1: Yeah, really well. <laughs> so well for Magic Girl, Ben Hex, Zombie Adventures, and Alice in Wonderland. But what John was really, really good at was siloing everyone because I had no idea I was working with Jeremy or Andrew. Um, I didn't even realize that he was having other animators work on it, like John, uh, like Jack Danger and stuff like that. And I think what I, and I, I don't have well, I've spoken to Magic Girl uh, pre order people that went in on it, but apparently like the clips I was making. He was sending them out, showing yeah you know, he had his website and people could log onto it. The the buyers would log onto it. A lot of that content I was generating was showing people this was going to be into the game. So <laughs> that was my my entry into actually working in pinball. And of course during that process, I'm still buying pinball machines, restoring pinball machines on pinside tracking pinside all the time seeing the new developments like with uh jerry at multimorphic you know seeing that all coming along following the expos and a magical post pops up from a jeremy packer on pinside like hey what's going on like this whole john Duke thing like what's going on and i i've never heard of jeremy before and i was like Hey, Jeremy, this is direct messaging through Pinside. Hey, I've been working with John too. Here's my phone number. Give me a call. I think we need to talk. (laughs) And that's basically how I got my introduction to Jeremy. He called me up like, yeah, I don't know what's going on. It's like, well, I don't think things are going well with John right now. Like something's not right. And that's when the whole J-pop thing all kind of exploded. Obviously people saw Jeremy's work ended up working for the biggest pinball company in the world I was still looking to be involved in pinball so from that point I uh was looking to do more stuff and a group of people came out with a little pinball machine called Predator I love Predator like oh, you, could this is them. Awesome. you
0: could pick him you could pick
1: him can't you oh mate <laughs> And um, I put 250 bucks down on Buying a Predator. They saw my name, and they saw that I was working for John, and they hit me up for their next game, which was Experts of Dangerous. So, again, my slate was cleared because John Papaduke disappeared. If you need help, I'm more than happy to help you. Let me start creating animations for that. So I started doing a bunch of that, which was all legitimate license and stuff like that with Adam Savage and stuff like that. That was all... Correct. We had no idea what was happening with predator. I'd never worked on predator. I was, I had money in predator because I was going to get one, but everything when I was working on Exposed to dangers was correct. The license was there, everything. So I worked towards on that game. And then we all know the history behind predator and how that went sideways and the expose happened on that. So that project slid sideways. So by that time, again, I'm communicating with people in the, in the industry, in the hobby. And I've been watching Ben Heck come up with Spooky with America's Most Haunted. So chatting back and forth and they just released America's Most Haunted. Talking to Ben at TPF, he's like, I am not doing another game. I can't, I do not want to do it. I said, I, I would potentially help programmer, but I'm not redoing what I did on America's Most Haunted. And David... It sounds like you should be working for Charlie because I'm not doing it. And that's when Ben introduced me to Charlie. I was wearing a Haunted Mansion t-shirt. Charlie looked at me once at TPF. He goes, we need to talk. We need to hang out. Like, you seem to be the right guy. And that's when I got pulled into Spooky to start working on Rob Zombie with David Fawcett um, and Charlie. And we started just grinding on it. So my very first production game that came out was Rob, uh, was Rob Zombie. That Woo-hoo! was the first game that came out, and then right. from that, so so I was just brought on to take care of the animations and basically help, you know, figure out what we're going to do for the rules and stuff like that.
0: So was that the first color display, or was Big Lebowski first?
1: Oh, probably. Well, so Pretty close. It, yeah, it's all in the same hmm. same realm. I. Th- it's hard to say I wouldn't couldn't tell you because I know we're very proud of it and it was also really painful because like so I'm doing all these animations at 720p like look at these beautiful animations and then Ben and Parker for me like yeah the the highest resolution is like 120 by 48 or 38 and I'm like I can't do anything with that (laughs) (laughs) like it was like All right, well, let's start running through the animations and then simply firing them down to make sure that you could see them because by the time you crush things down, it starts looking yuck. So it was a huge learning curve for me. You know, it's kind of funny, like, you know, with Rob Zombie coming up with the bowl save, and I remember showing that to the guys at Spooky, and they're like, I don't know if we could get away with that. And I'm like, well... What's the worst that you can do? Like the whole point of approvals is you take it to them, you show them. If they don't like it, you don't have to use it. But if you if you like it, if they like it, we can get away with it. Now, surely enough
0: times passed. One was cut out. One animation you did, Charlie said. Even I said we can't have that. Something to do with putting the coin in the coin slot. I think. Yeah,
1: it was an insert. It was. It was. I was like. This is straight from you know the the William back in the nineties day where you'd have the coin that would go into the insert showing you did that. So I did the exact same thing, but it was pushing a coin through the skin of an arm. Oh, so that's that's what it was, right? But when you shrank it's it down, than
0: cutting to, someone's testicle off.
1: <laughs> well, but the thing is, when you when you shrunk down the animation to the small display, you lost the, all the definition of that was someone's arm that the coin was getting pushed into. So it looked, it, it didn't look great at all. Oh. And um, anyway, they took the game to uh, a concert at Rob zombie to his backstage. So he could give approvals and stuff to it. And uh, they were going through the game, talking about the game. I wasn't there. I was, this is all hearsay. what they came back and told me and they said, well, we want to show you the bowl save animation. Cause we're not sure if it's appropriate that you want for this game and uh he was like oh yeah show us and they put it on and uh his wife sherry goes that's amazing that's gotta stay and it stayed so that ball save like she she absolutely adored it so i was just like okay cool we're in the right vein of what rob wants for his game we can just keep going at this yeah there's a ton of stuff in that game that was very much a first in pinball i don't think there's i don't think there's a display as gross as intense as adult-rated as Rob Zombie.
0: He settled in at Spooky.
1: Yes. Next game... See, I have to remember... I, I probably can't tell you what they're in order, but it was definitely... I think Dominoes was the first one up. And actually, that game, I think, is... Very underrated. In fact, I am actually chatting with someone right now to get another Domino's game, like to get a Domino's game because I don't have one. So this is the first time I actually start working directly with the licensor. Working with them and them allowing us to do whatever we want was really an awesome experience with Adam. Adam was the guy that basically commissioned the Domino's pinball machine. And the wizard mode in that game like we've we so we did Rob Zombie. We probably tripled the animations for dom, for Dominoes. Wow. Just because we could. The wizard mode, you actually end up fighting the knockoff versions of Little Caesars and Poppy Johns. Oh. You know? So we do all this stuff. I mean we had access to the Noid video game. So there was they actually have all the music from that. You know. It was just like it was really a fun project to work on because it was the first time i was dealing directly with the licensor and finding out what they wanted and then basically catering to how to make that product the best it can be
0: so this is the first time you got involved in licensing as well
1: well it was i didn't i wasn't involved in the licensing side of it it was definitely the approval and getting their input on how to make the game like how what they were what they would approve what they wouldn't approve
0: right but the licensing does come up later, doesn't it?
1: Um, we do dominoes, and then the next one after that was the Jetsons. That's actually the first time we were dealing with Warner Brothers. Um, but again, I was just the animator. We were handing this stuff off, sending it off, hoping for approvals to come back, and what would what wouldn't, and we would move on because that was a contract game as well. And then so we did that, and then the next one after that I think is TNA. So on TNA, we no had licensing. no licensing, but Scott had already started doing some animations for his game because it wasn't intended to be for production. So a lot of the stuff he was using that it was common, common rights. So we had to go through and it's like, well, let's go through and do this where we own it. Where where Scott can own the animation, so I make I made all the animations for TNA, so there was all clear, free, you know, free and clear. And that's actually my first experience working with Scott Denisi. Fantastic experience, pretty much. He loved everything I did. That was, <laughs> again, very easy to work through because listening to what the licensor, what the creator wants, give him multiple choices. You know, home like this is something I learned in film and television. I would have. Producers that would come in to watch an edit of mine. I would have certain producers that trusted me and Would go back and forth and we'll get the edit done. I would have producers that would other producers that would come in I would show them the edit we would spend all day making changes and By the time the end of the day is we've basically reverted back to my original edit so I learned really early on is you put some really bad edit choices into something and you present multiple choices. So basically instead of them wanting to micromanage everything you do, you give them something really obvious to focus on and everything else moves out from that point. So that's when I learned really quickly is listen, understand where they're coming from, give them three different options and then focus down on that. And that's when you really get to understand and try and figure out the direction they're going to go. And that's something kind I of learned on Dominoes, that's something kind I of learned on TNA, and that's when we jumped into Alice Cooper. And with Alice Cooper, very different kettle of fish when it comes to Rob Zombie. Rob Zombie didn't have much involvement, he will just like, you know, Rob Zombie when he said, oh we're gonna, like, I remember Ben and Charlie telling me, oh we want to do this roadie game, like... You're going on tour, like you're a roadie working for Rob and you're traveling the country and you're going to be doing this, this. And Rob's like, nah, don't like it. So that's how we ended up doing what we did for Rob Zombie. Alice Cooper, on the other hand, was like, the only thing I want is this has to be family friendly. Yes, it needs to be horror, it needs to be, you know, spooky, but it needs to be family friendly. That was what I got told we have to make it look like, like, what are we going to do with the modes? Charlie and Bug presented the, the songs, which I was like, why is there no schools out? Like, Schools out is like, we need schools out, but they were very much focused on this was escape from Here's castle. These are the songs we want to do. Let's do all the theming around these modes. So, okay, well, what creatures are we going to have for this? We're going to do a werewolf here. We're going to do a Frankenstein here. We're going to do all these different characters throughout here, bugs and insects and stuff.
0: I do find it it has to be a family-friendly game. You've got a song about having sex with a corpse in a freezer and a song about going to a disco and shooting everybody. Disco who? Disco what? Get down on your knees and keep
1: your trap shut. Very family-friendly. I'm just doing what I get told. <laughs> Coming up with these ideas, because you got to remember, at Spooky, I am the sole person that is responsible for getting all the animations done. All the other companies, Stern, Jersey Jack, has, you know, at that time, I don't know, you know, Stern probably had eight, seven people working for them at one time, you know, doing one project uh jjp is probably i mean you got jp over there and he has some people helping him i'm just one person a spooky and i will tell you every project is like i don't know how i'm gonna do the next one how do i get it? how do i make it better you know because i've constantly want to challenge myself so i just sat down i was like okay oh, how are we gonna theme this because uh jeff zorno was already you know working on the art package and so I'm seeing all that come together and I'm like all right well I have to do this in animation because we don't have access to any of the mu- the video clips or anything like that so it all has to be animated me I got uh, sorry Jeff Zono doing all the artwork which I can pull from and he will create get, get him to give me storyboards and stuff like that to work with the artist doing the cabinet and the playfield would not be doing the display work where I was very set on we have to have to make it cohesive, we have to have the artist doing the cabinet, also doing the display work, like giving me assets for the display, because mm-hmm. if we can marry the music, the style of the cabinet and the display, it's going to be one cohesive package. So I was just sitting there and I look over my shoulder and there's like, there's my one sheet from Towson the Crypt from VHS. My VHS days back from Australia, how they presented them and I'm like, well, what if we did a Tales from the Crypt slash Creepshow take on this, where it's because Creep uh, Creepshow was a, a good example, as the opening was a animated sequence that would go into live action. So, <clears throat> over a period of a weekend, I take a the the Alice Cooper Marvel comic page that he did back in the day. I took that laid it down, I animated some of the art from Zorno and I created the attract mode for the display. It was purely a mock-up because I wanted to show Charlie, like, this is my idea. So it opens up on him coming out of that castle, you know, and it's like Alice Cooper, right? It's is it's the exact attract screen that you see today in that game. And I send it off to Charlie and then I get an email back. Alice approved that this is this is what we're doing. And I'm like, yep. <laughs> Hang on, this was a rough. Like I like this was for you to tell me if I was heading in the right direction and it's like, "Okay, we've already got approval. This is the direction we're going." <laughs> so that's when we just went, you know, that's okay. Well, I know the path. If this is what Alice loved, that's the direction we're going. So then then from that point, me and Ben, Ben Ben and me would do the storyboards. He did a lot of the, you know, we'd sit there from eight at night to midnight doing storyboards. Then we'll send that off to Zorno to get us the elements. And then I would go in and animate all of that, like all the insects, you name it, we did it. So
0: Purely, purely coincidence. The four silhouettes for the four players, just randomly two girls, two guys, Sco- no, it's completely guy. based on Scooby
1: Doo. <laughs> like we always wanted to do Scooby Doo. We always wanted to do Scooby Doo. So, admitting it, ah, oh, one hundred percent. It was always based on that. Um, but you know, they're not. They're, they're they're stylistic. Yeah, they're not the copyright. Yeah, they are yeah. not the copyright. They <laughs> Jeff Zorno's take on Scooby Doo. Ah, beautiful. Um, beautiful. So, and at that time, we had we did not have that license at all. But what brought us back to Warner Brothers, so we did Alice Cooper. And at the time, Charlie had started talking to Adult Swim. And at that time, we needed more license. So Alice Cooper did really, really well. So we needed more licenses. And so Charlie was working on his angle and stuff like that. And he was like, well, David, do you know anyone? And I was like, well, I've got, you know, what else can I do? I'll, I'll give it a go. And I've had some, I got some friends in the industry and stuff. So I just started talking to people. That's literally how I started to go into licensing because we needed another license for a pinball machine, started meeting with people, going out there, talking, showing, just doing the typical, you know, shaking hands. Charlie started talking to adult swim and I said, well, I'm going out to the licensing show. Why don't you, uh, let's, let's, let's let's have everyone meet everyone. And that was the next big one.
0: So Rick and Morty, there we go. You got the yeah. the hot property.
1: And at that time, we were trying to get a project for Scott. Scott, you know, get him and like, doing another game for Spooky. And it was just the right place at the right time with that IP. You know, they were looking to make it happen and, We were there willing to work with them. So it was one of those, again, working directly with the actual filmmakers, the animators, and what can we have, what can't we do? Licensing certain music tracks, because obviously Scott wanted to do in-like music, which he did, Um, but there were obviously certain songs that we had to have for the game. So again, just just a little bit of negotiating, seeing what they can do, what we can't do. Always got to push the envelope a little bit and they would push back and it was one of those games that's when Bowen was brought on to to work on Alice Cooper which then he became the lead rule design on Rick and Morty with Eric in programming and uh, I remember we all flew into Chicago to Scott's house and we spent I think it was two nights or one night, two nights, maybe one night. I'm not sure, but we just sat there and we watched every episode of Rick and Morty with (laughs) pen and paper. It was like, what can these modes be? And it wasn't like there was one person that said, it has to be this, right? We had ideas like Scott already had a layout in mind, what he was doing. And that was just a really great experience working with those three guys and making that work, you know, having input from everyone, even AJ and people from the floor of Spooky getting involved and stuff like that. It was a really good experience. So we did Rick and Morty. That went the way it it did, and it went well. And we kind of wanted to go back into the horror direction, and that's where Halloween came in. And I had relationships with those guys. That's when that game got picked up with Spooky and. That game came to be, and at the same time as we were doing that, Charlie was talking to Ultraman. Ultraman was picked up and brought along for the ride as well.
0: How much longer were you at Spooky after that license was obtained?
1: Actually, I so while that was in development and working on that on that project, I had secured Scooby Doo for for them and two other IPs for them after that as well which were yeah. <laughs> to be to be announced that was all the time that covid started coming about and that's when things changed worldwide because you got to remember when i was doing all that i was still living in texas but i was traveling up to wisconsin you know once a month you know, driving, I would drive up, I would fly sometimes, but mainly I would drive up there, back and forth. Oof. And I did that for oh, a long time. I mean, I worked for Spooky at that point, eight years.
0: Wow. How long the drive? Point. It's a long way.
1: Eighteen and a half
0: hours. Bloody hell. Okay. Good. Dedicated to pinball. Very good.
1: Well, it's one of those things, you get up at 4.30 in the morning, you just go. Oh. <laughs> you just go. I would get there and at 12.30 at night. So, and right. then I'll be ready to work the next day.
0: Yay. All Sweet. right. So necessity of COVID. Let's relax back in Texas. Uh- <laughs>
1: COVID was definitely for me, a reset on everything personally. Yep. It, You know, you got to remember at this point, I've worked in the service industry, providing a service to the film and television and pinball for 25 years. So 25 years in pinball, uh, in video, film and TV And then eight years coming up, that's the 10-year anniversary this year. What am I doing? Like, I'm traveling. My wife is still here in Houston. You know, we're talking about moving to, you know, Benton, Wisconsin. And with COVID being around, it was, I mean, who who knew what was going to happen realistically? And that's when I just, I needed to step back. I needed to, what am I doing? So since everyone was pretty much been told stay at home figure this out that's when i was like you know you remember i would work film and television from 8 in the morning to 6 at night i would come home have dinner with the family put the, put my boys to bed go to my office at 8:30 at night and i'd work to 12:30 to 1 and i did that for 7 years
0: yeah that explains the insanity that gets us to the main part of the podcast, <laughs> that you thought, what can I do now in pinball that I haven't done before? I know. I think I might start my own pinball company. To which... Well,
1: it didn't start out that way. So I pulled back. Because you got to remember, I'm still in film and television. And so I stepped back because there's a couple of film projects I had been working on at the same time I'm doing the spooky stuff. I stop working. I start focusing on the film stuff a little bit more, um, and these are personal film projects that I actually have a lot of involvement in. It's not. This is not a contract break, This is, you know, films or TV shows I actually want to see come to life. And as I'm working on those projects, um, a really good friend of mine, Brian Savage, was like, "Well, what are you going to do, David?" I'm like, "I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, I'm working on this film stuff." And I would still get calls from my licensing friends saying, hey, David, we would like to have a pinball machine of this. Or we would like to license this IP. And I was like, well, I'm not working with Spooky. I can, I, w- I will pass you off to Spooky. And I, I did that on uh, you know, a couple of IPs. And I had friends at other pinball companies. And I would just shuffle stuff around to see who was interested. And my, my friend, who is now my partner, is like, well, why don't you do it? And I'm like, do you know how hard pinball is?
0: He's not a a friend.
1: (laughs) So, so again, so I'm just juggling a lot of stuff, trying to figure out what I want to do, getting my life kind of sorted out. And it got to the point where we were constantly talking about it. And I was like, you know what? Let's sit down and do a business plan. You know, let's see how stupid this idea is. And, you know, we sat down and, wrote up a 10-year business plan and it was like on paper this seems to work it was like well what have we got to lose let's do it you know why don't i serve myself this time around because what have i got to lose nothing like with COVID and everything else it could end tomorrow you know so what have i literally what do i have to lose at this point
0: sanity money <laughs> hair color
1: here's the thing mate you can't take that with you when you're gone you know what so let's have a good time while we're here okay and um yeah just started like all right well this ip wants you know really wants to work with me i did my pitch and they were like absolutely we've got to do this off we went to the races you know it was one of those situations where everything was was going really really well then we hit a ton of roadblocks Hmm. Um, but what was important for me and brian was what we saw of a gap in the industry which was the the things that we loved about pinball in the early in the 2000s was not knowing what was coming out when stern dropped a game you had no idea if it was tron Rolling Stones, Metallica, like you'd get that trailer on the Monday or Tuesday morning. You are excited. You want to learn everything about it. You got involved. You talk to your friends about it. That's when the community just lit up and everyone wanted to be involved. That I hate to say has gone from the industry. Everyone has little insiders. Everyone has some people, piece of information. And when you've worked, I like to say when I've worked as long as I have in this industry, there's nothing to get excited about anymore because you roughly know what everyone's doing. I mean, I hate to say it, but that that kind of kills the excitement about why I love pinball in the first place was finding out that new thing, you know, like you always hear stories of people in, in Chicago, that would go to their local arcade and there would be this new game that hasn't been released, you know, and they're testing it on location. And there was that exciting thing that you found. You know, that magic of finding something new, I feel like has gone from this industry a little bit because everyone wants to know what everyone's doing. The genesis of this company, which we'll get into the name shortly, is we wanted to make a product that people can get excited about again, you know, work with people that didn't want to leak stuff that we, you know, make a product that we as collectors Brian and me, and uh, people people that work for us, will go, that's what we want to see in the IP. That's what we want to see in a pinball machine. So we approach it as, who are the licenses looking for a game? How are they going to, what can we get from them to make a game exciting for the fans of this IP? And how do we tell an amazing pinball story with it? Those are the foundations of what Barrels of Fun is. And uh, that's what kind of fired us up again, because it's like, if we can make games that can make us excited again, then people will get excited again. And that's what we wanted to bring to it.
0: And where's the name come from? Barrels of Fun?
1: Barrels of Fun. Well, it's one of those things that we were trying to come up with a name of what we're going to call this company. And it was just really frustrating to come up with something you because know, you go down the typical pinball, you know, naming things like, oh, pinball this, pinball that. I got so frustrated with being asked, what do you want to call it, David? What do you want to call it? I'm like, well, this is just such a barrel of fun, isn't it? And it was just like, hang on. Barrel of fun. So it's stuck. It's just like, you, you know go. what? We are having a barrel of fun. It really, it's hard. It's not, it's not for the faint of heart, but. It beats doing a regular job. (laughs) (laughs) There
0: you go. Ah, Cool. And should we reveal the title now? I think some people will know, but there are still some people who don't know what the IP
1: is. So what's your
0: first game?
1: Our first game out of Barrels of Fun is going to be Jim Henson's Labyrinth with David Bowie. TriStar Pictures announces the collaboration of three extraordinary talents. Jim Henson, creator of the Muppets and Dark Crystal. George Lucas, creator of the Star Wars saga. And one of the most innovative forces in modern entertainment, David Bowie. (laughs) Together, they will take you into a dazzling world of fantasy and adventure. The world of
0: Labyrinth. Ah, okay. And how long have you been working on this game?
1: So I've had meetings with the Jim Henson's company back when I was at Spooky. Um, and there was a guy called Shane there, and uh, we talked about it. And I was going through their catalog. And obviously, I told you how much I loved Dark Crystal. And Labyrinth was another one that I really, really enjoyed as a, a teenager. But when I started looking more at, at their IP, I started focusing more on Labyrinth because we're talking about Pinball Machine. A pinball machine that has paths ways that can change and you can grab the ball and you can make it do something and the whole point of that film is you are trying to find your way through a maze to come you know to basically defeat the goblin king and so when i started putting that together and thinking about pinball rolls, it felt like a perfect fit for a mode based pinball machine and the, the Hansen company and the Bowie estate have been just fantastic to work with because they weren't looking just to stick a sticker on a product. They really wanted the IP come to life. And when we put the pitch to them on how we're going to do this and the layout and the concept, but when we showed them the depth that we were going to do, they were like, how can we not do this? We are stewardships of these IPs. You know, if we can't do this justice, we shouldn't be doing it. And for so those who just...
0: haven't seen Labyrinth yet, do yourself a favour, find it on a streaming service somewhere, grab a DVD, just just a little bit. It was made by Jim Henson, as we said, who directed it alongside George Lucas, who you may have all heard of, of Star Wars fame, stars Jennifer Connelly and David Bowie. It's a kids' movie that's actually... Quite frightening (laughs) in parts. But a great family movie and a great first title. It's just amazing. No one's done it before.
1: What's interesting about that is, you know, a lot of people love or hate it. When I started doing the market research, looking at the metrics on this IP, was the demographic on this. And that was what was very interesting to me. Because the people that love Labyrinth is right in the demographic of pinball the other side though is it's also very female friendly yeah and i actually thought that was a very interesting take on it
0: i gonna ask the the funky questions now lots of companies starting up at the moment what's the chances this game is going to be mass-produced
1: oh well, it has to be mass-produced because i'm making it yeah so, <laughs>
0: but how many of you are making it how many people are there how many are you planning to release on release so, of the game
1: So starting again going back to barrels of fun, the reason we're doing this is we've seen many companies fail at this and a lot of the time want, they want to show their product out early to get people excited because I also understand that because they're very excited about the product they're making. They want to get people to see it. They want people to get excited just as much as they're excited about making this product, but what makes us different is. We're making our games. We have a facility. We have a 20,000 square foot factory here in Houston. We have 68,000 parts in our facility to start making games. In fact, we are making games right now. Games are going into boxes right now. I did not want to come to market without games in boxes, period. Because if I don't invest in myself, if I don't make this happen, then there is no company. So, you know, I have to invest in myself. I have to invest in the people that I have around me. Right? As of right now, I have over 12 full time employees. We are expanding that. This doesn't include the subcontractors that I use on a daily basis. And I am employing, I am basically interviewing people on a, on a weekly basis to keep growing the facility that we have right now because we have to have games going into boxes. That's what's important when bringing this, bringing this game to market.
0: So on reveal the game will be available for purchase.
1: Right now we are as this podcast probably comes out is we are heading to Chicago Expo for a preview of the game for people to get hold of it. So when this comes out you will know, you will see the teaser, you will see the trailer, you will see the people behind the game. We'll have over we'll have 10 games in boxes on route to Expo right now with another 10 rolling off the line and another 10 behind that. It is, you know, again, we can't come to market unless we have gaming boxes and games rolling off the end of that line. Is it where we want it to be? No. Did I expect us to end up in a battle with Russia halfway through me building this company? No. Did that disrupt the whole supply chain after COVID? It certainly did, but you know what? It doesn't matter because, We're paying for these games going in boxes right now because I don't expect my customers to do that.
0: And play fields? Who's making the play fields?
1: (laughs) The number one question. (laughs) So I'm not making my own play fields. I am relying on a very good company to do so, and that would be CPR out of Canada. We have seen what happens with play fields, and I'm not saying we're not acceptable to it because play fields are made out of wood. It's an organic matter, depending where it comes from and how it's treated. You can't control those things. But what you can do is look for some of the best people that make playfields. And uh, CPR is right up there. And very happy to say that we have CPR playfields. I think this is, yeah, this is the first time that CPR will be providing playfields to a manufacturer, which is barrels of fun.
0: Nice. Who's on software and game design? programming put it that way
1: programming and rules so so there's actually multiple people on this so we got phil grimaldi who is leading up the rule design on this game we've also um bowen kearns also leading up overall balancing and game rules it's as well so Phil Grimaldi is a, a, uh, scientist who specializes in how people learn and remembering things. So he is ranked 136 in the, uh, the pinball, uh, rankings. How I actually, I met him was back in the early two thousands when he moved to Houston and I was helping, I was in the group kind of running the Houston pinball scene and he wanted to started doing tournaments. And uh, he goes, Hey Dave, how would you feel? We started running tournaments. I'm like dude, I have a kid. I don't have time. I, think I have a newborn. Knock yourself out, man. If you want to run the tournaments, you go ahead and do that. And uh, he's he basically set up the space city pinball league here in Houston, which absolutely exploded here in Houston. Like the pinball scene in Houston owes Phil a huge debt. The way he has set up the scene, it's so inclusive. It's so much fun. What he's done here is amazing. And, I brought him on to do the rules of Labyrinth because it turns out he is a massive Labyrinth fan. He thought I was crazy. I don't think he believed I was actually going to create a pinball company, but he was quite happy to sit down and start creating rules for this game that he didn't think was going to exist. (laughs) So Phil Phil jumped on for the ride. So we got going on that. And then I had to bring on a full-time programmer and that would be in the name of Eric Prepke. Do you know who Eric Prepke is?
0: Oh, yeah. He used to work for Spooky.
1: Yep. Well, he did Rick and Morty with them. So when I stepped aside and I started playing around with this stuff, I, you know, I had a great time working with Eric. And uh, I said, hey, dude, I, I've got this game. Would you be interested in working on it? And it turns out he was a huge Labyrinth fan. <laughs> and he was like, dude, I would love to do it. So he, he jumped on board as the official programmer on the game. He's been kicking butt here as a full-time employee at Barrels of Fun. He even left his day job to come and work for me. Ooh, so, cool. Who's the artist? So the artist is interesting. So we have on the playfield, and the inner blades, and the back, an uh, alternative backlash for this game. We have Johnny Crap, who did the Stern Jurassic Park pinball Machine. He is the one that has led all the art on that. And then we have Matt Hillman. And,
0: oh, Johnny Crap. Now, let me say something about Johnny Crap. Envision the Jurassic Park playfield, and imagine an artist who then does Labyrinth, and I guarantee you would not think it's the same artist. Now, you can take that in whatever way you like because I think the Labyrinth artwork on that play field is absolutely stunning.
1: Yeah, I mean... Not that there's anything
0: wrong with Jurassic Park, Johnny, but Labyrinth is just another level.
1: Well, John came on and uh, he really knocked it out of the park. So on the cabinet art and the the David Bowie back glass and the full cabinet art, that was done by Nate, um, who did, he actually does a lot of the posters for Disney. He's done uh, all of the Star Wars films, uh, Force Awakens and so forth. He did a yep. lot of those posters. And he was art directed by a very good friend of mine called Johnny Fraser, used to, he actually doesn't work there anymore, used to work for Weta. So he did a lot of the Hobbit dwarf designs and stuff like that. He is an amazing artist and he is the, I would say, the creative director of Labyrinth. He is a massive Labyrinth fan. In fact, I discovered him as I was working on this game just through YouTube videos is Adam Savage was down at Weta and Johnny was working in the background and Adam saw his labyrinth set piece in his in his room, and Adam came over and was like...
0: Now just a reminder before you go on, if Adam Savage rings some bells for people, but they can't quite place it, he was one half of the lead of Mythbusters.
1: And but... now runs a very successful YouTube channel called Test It, so where he basically makes all things that he loves, from prop making, visiting prop makers, uh, and just all-round tinkering.
0: So he saw the set piece for Labyrinth in the background.
1: Yeah, and he went over there and he ended up doing a whole deep dive because Johnny, at that time, he's a big tabletop game player. And he was actually making a, not a life-size, but a full-size tabletop game for lab, for his own Labyrinth game because he loved Labyrinth growing up as a kid just like I did. So he, he has made himself a one-to-one life-size hoggle He has made life-size one-to-one the four guards just because he wanted to. He loves Labyrinth. So when I saw this video, just like everything else in my life, I'm like, I need to talk to him. So I just messaged him. He hit me back. and like, hey, look, I'm heading up this project. What do you think? And he goes, Labyrinth? Like, you're making a pinball machine Labyrinth? Dude, I love Labyrinth. Like, my first pinball machine I bought was Jurassic Park. Like, if you, you seriously going to make a pinball machine and i showed him the the concepts and stuff he goes dude i want to do this like i i need to be your creative director i want to get involved i can get all these people for you that's how i got hold of nate to do the cabinet art that's where we got hold of mikey who did all the 3d sculpts for the game so wow. in this game we have let me count them up one two three four five six seven sculpts in I only count six as a hidden one. <laughs> there is a hidden one. <laughs> yep. In fact, there's two hidden ones. There's technically oh, well, actually, uh, most of them are hidden under until the you play me. the game. Yes, and pop-outs, yes. <laughs> but it was like, you know, it's it, again, his relationships, what he has built over from Weta, it was like, why are we not tapping into artists that maybe have no pinball experience. And there's nothing better than if you're a super fan of a product. Mm. A pinball machine is the pinnacle of collectibles. Yeah, It is a playable piece of art.
0: And it's always on display. Yeah,
1: It's always on display. And now Beautiful. you get the opportunity to experience that IP. This is a world you get to experience for yourself. And it was really important when we tackled this This is not you playing as Sarah. This is your experience in the Labyrinth. Like, that was something for me as a kid regarding this IP, was Sarah made some really silly decisions in that movie. Like, when you fall (laughs) down a hole and some helping hands (laughs) grab you and they say, which way do you want to go? Up Uh, or down? And she chooses down. (laughs) Well, guess what? In this game, you actually get to choose... Do you want to go up or do you want to go down, yeah. you know? And okay. that's probably an, you know, another reason why I think it makes a good IP for a pinball machine because this is not her experience. This is your experience, your experience, your opportunity to find your friends, go and find Hoggle, go and find Ludo, go and find Sir Didymus and have them help you get to the Goblin King in the Goblin Castle.
0: And you see know. those frightening pants he wears while singing. But aside from that, up, the operating system we're using. So the,
1: yep. so the operating system is uh, built in-house. And actually, that was an a interesting turn of events is David Fossett. You may know recognize that name. Robbie,
0: um, Robbie Zombie.
1: Yes. So he worked at Spooky. He worked at Spooky longer than I did. I've always stayed in touch with him. And, uh, he stepped away from spooky a year ago, not a year ago. He, he stepped away from spooky. And when he did that, I kind of reached out to him and was like, Hey Dave, you're interested in some work. And he's like, yeah, what are you talking about? And honestly, I think he was thought I was talking about some mods and that for pinball machine, because at this stage I had bought like pinball armor and stuff like that, a product for you know pinball and i um, like, ah, oh, you know, something a little bit bigger than that he wasn't sure and he flew down here to houston to see what i was doing and then honestly by the end of his three-day trip he was like i'm in i'm moving down ah. so uh so david is actually handing a lot of the os back end of our stuff um is also handling all our inventory uh in the facility tracking uh quality control yeah so he's he's taking care of all that for us nice nice you've got a good team going there let's talk about the display work so again oh that
0: that rubbish it's minor the animation no it Ah. is not
1: no (laughs) it's not so again this goes back to i need to like surround myself with the best people i can find so i've now you know got my friend from weta involved as the creative director who is you know brought in some amazing artists I have guys in New Zealand doing the 3D animations for me. I have a video editor over here called Trent Armstrong that will be more involved in pinball, but he's been doing all the asset creation for this game. It's something, it's really strange for me to step away, but when you're setting up a facility like this, you cannot do everything. And back to my golden rule I have to hire the best I can get. So I have John Schilberg, Trent Armstrong. They're handling all the video assets for me. Then I also have Blake Desimel. He's handling all of the marketing materials for us. So when you see the flyers and everything else, he's taking care of that all for us. Someone I haven't said, you know, is my partner. People don't know who he is, but he has 25 years of experience running under license from Hasbro. Transformers in GI Joe for 25 years. He's made GI Joe toys. He's made Transformer toys. And this is where we're doing a lot of toy creation. So we design all our stuff with our guys from weather, from around the world. We do that all in 3d. We Z brush all that stuff. We print them out. We see how they look. Then we take them over to our partners. Get those done. Get they sent over here. Then I looked at all the manufacturing that I would have to do. All the fabrication from people here in Houston, Texas, in Chicago, California, all over the country, bringing them all in here. Right now, I'm working with 65 different vendors from across the world. <laughs> it's it's interesting, but honestly, seeing these people step up and take control of this, it hasn't been easy. There, I been mean, I've had samples come in that are fantastic, and then when I get the production, they're completely different. But that's why you have a conversation and you sit down and you figure it out. You know, this is why you have a mechanical engineer. Paul Suss, you don't know that name, but you will know that name. He is the mechanical engineer on this game. Uh, and his background is, guess who set up American Pinball, their facility, their manufacturing? Uh-huh. Paul did. Uh-huh. There you go. He set up the whole facility there. Mm-hmm. He worked there right up until Oktoberfest. But he was in charge of setting up the production line. He was setting up all of their infrastructure. That's what he did. He works here full time. I Amazing. have Travis Moseman. He's an engineer from Boeing and NASA. He is handling all of the other side of the mechanical engineering side of things. What? These are all people that have a passion for pinball. I yep. have outside experience that I want them to put into this. Yeah
0: bring some innovation back into pinball and including innovation. You've got two displays and for the first time ever, even though there's been a second party version of it, you have a display with animations and rules on the back panel of the playfield.
1: Correct. So I won't say this was a second, a last minute ad, but when we were dealing with creating this world under glass, and there's so many opportunities. Like when you look at that back box and we were going to do these little mechanical things back there. And it's just like, when I was working on landscapes with my animation team, with the display in the back box, I was just like, why aren't we putting that down on the play field somewhere? Like, how can we do that? And. I just kind of got at this point. I actually picked up a bunch of assets uh, at auction at deep root where they had all the long displays and stuff like that.
0: I remember unpacking them from a truck. But anyway,
1: <laughs> <laughs> and like I just like got one out, put it on a piece of wood, gaffy taped it to the back of the machine, and it was like, I think that will work, you know. And when you start doing mechs in the back, because everything comes down to a bill of materials when we were doing these Macs and we was calculating how much these would would to do, have things move left and right and stuff like that. I was like, the video display is cheaper than the mechs. And if I turn it into a display, I can expand the world under glass through the back of the machine. And it so looks now, good. It looks and, so good. <laughs> and now we have an opportunity. Yes. You have the main display up on the back box that everyone can see where everyone knows where all the scores are. But now we can actually move through actual rules. We can have the goblins now sticking those rules up into the back of the back box, into the horizon. So when you're shooting it, you just have to look up a little bit into the back of the play field and you'll see the rules that you have to play by. It just yes, fun.
0: Yes. Variations in game levels? Are you having C's, LEs, SEs, LVs?
1: Uh, <laughs> or are we <laughs> every, having the one? Every- Every version you can think of, we are going to have a uh, a zizzle, a pro. A, no, <laughs> again, what it comes down to is what barrels of fun represents, and it's, it comes down to the foundation. What me and Brian really believe in is like what is a collectible, what makes people excited, and there should be only one to rule them all. I'm not saying this is how it's always going to be but at the end of the day there should be one version so for labyrinth there is only one version there's no LE there's no pro you get the collectible game it's as nice. simple as that nice. now we we do have accessories with the you know there is a topper that you can purchase separately and there's a shooter rod you can purchase separately these things do not change the gameplay they enhance it but they don't change the gameplay in any which way so Ooh. There is no, like, oh, I think the premium is better, or I think the pro is better. No, there's only one labyrinth. There's yeah. only one collectible labyrinth.
0: All assets in there, all actors, all music, video clips.
1: So, <laughs> on the licensing side, so yes, we have David Bowie in it. We have all the char- We have all the characters into it. The one person we do not have is Sarah. Oh. And that was actually a choice by myself because this was your experience in labyrinth. Right. You are not playing as Sarah. It's rip so, the Gate all
0: over again. <laughs> it's a <quite>, come back.
1: <laughs> it could be, but at the end of the day, this this was all about your experience in the in labyrinth.
0: the labyrinth. Yes, and not hers. this
1: is this is your journey to battle the Goblin King. Cool.
0: Who is David Bowie?
1: Who is David Bowie?
0: That's very good. That's so, very good. So
1: are people going to, well, what about the music? So, yes, we have the music. We have five tracks from the soundtrack. We have Magic Dance, Yep. Underground, Chilly Down, As the World Falls Down, and Within You. There you go. So those are the five songs that we have in this. That doesn't mean we haven't created more music. We will have 12 original music pieces scored for this game, bringing on a gentleman that actually has mentored by Hans Zimmerman. Oh. Do you know Hans Zimmerman? Oh. Yeah. Name dropper? Okay. <laughs> so uh, so he is actually, his name is Andrew Dish. He is working on creating additional music for this game and plus mastering as well. You know, someone that has also been involved in this project is Scott Denisi. So Scott has actually come down in here and he has redid all other cabinet audio. So he came down and cause we have a full full range speakers in the back box, but we also have an eight inch JBL subwoofer in the back and uh, Scott came down and we moved that subwoofer around because you want to talk about someone that knows pinball audio, Scott and he sees the guy. Nice. Um, and he came down and he basically tweaked the sound system on this game to its nth degree and as he says there's no perfect pinball audio but he tweaked this to the best his ability so we're so happy to have scott involved in this project and he will be involved in more aspects of this project as we go down
0: nice is there any plans in the future for uh internet connectivity
1: We will have – so our system will be updatable over the internet, correct?
0: Oh, cool. Because that's easier. Everyone's everyone's slowly getting there, just sort of getting into the 2000s now, making their games internet connectivity. So our plans, yep.
1: Yeah, so we we have already have baked it into our system. It is not in the current game right now because we want to make sure it's really stable. Um, but yes, it is already being worked on and probably will not be ready at game launch, but probably within the first couple of months it will be. Nice. You'll be able to update your game through the internet.
0: Now, I'm not going to talk about the play field simply because talking about a play field on a podcast is really boring unless you can sit there and look at it. Most people listen while they're driving.
1: Well, but- the best thing about that is when this drops, we will have a Bowen doing a gameplay tutorial of this game. So you will get to know the rules and everything else that goes along with this. So you will see, you know, the five custom sculpts that we got in there, the four appearing interactive sculpts that will be popping up and interacting with you. The magnets working. We really feel like we've put a lot into this game. You know, But
0: I will emphasize in case you haven't seen it or haven't had a quick chance to zip on. It is not a street level game. This thing has ramps and diverters and everything that moves and bells and whistles like it's an extraordinary thing to watch in action
1: well i mean look it's one of those things of it's a it's a labyrinth you have to have multiple pathways when i set out to design this every pathway should have multiple outcomes there is one shot on here which is the right ramp that does not have multiple outcomes on it it is just just directly a right ramp but But it takes a rather
0: convoluted path
1: Well, you're welcome. Um, But again, like this is a labyrinth. Nothing really should be, you know, straight angled. Everything should be slightly odd. I mean, a good example is the skill shot on this. This skill shot technically has, we've built into it, five different skill shots in it. It's got three flippers. It has three slingshots. It has three ramps. It has metal wire forms. It has plastic ramps you know we have all rgb led you know insert lamps factory installed inner blades gold mirror playfield plastics which is a first we got the 15.6 hd display in the back you know with the uh, full range stereo subwoofers that also has interactive full rgb illuminations on them this is all standard powder coating on the trim you know again all standard but you know this has been an absolute passion of mine and again i want to make sure i'm making the best product i can possibly deliver with the best people i've ever worked with in my life i'm putting everything on the ropes on this
0: yeah no it's good it's good so chicago expo it'll be out there
1: we will have a minimum of four games on the floor good we will have another six games For a private event that we're going to be having there, so we have a total of ten games going to Chicago. As my team down here is putting another ten in boxes that week.
0: Lovely, lovely. And don't are are you are you polluting mine, or is mine being shipped over to Australia as we speak?
1: So technically, so as of this recording. Well, it comes down to when it can get to you, but it will be in a box heading your way. Woo-hoo! So if I want to know, when you look at that game game played by Bowen, that is yep. Dr. John's game.
0: Yay. <laughs> and it
1: was nice. Taught it all these do, good habits, like how to hit do, things. <laughs> do you want me to have him sign it? I'll make sure he signs it. Because he's down this week. Of so.
0: course. You and Bowen and David Bowie, if you can. Good luck.
1: That one's going to be a little bit hard.
0: <laughs> now, before we go. Give me your favourite Australia. What's the first band you saw in Australia when you were back
1: here? yesterday. That was oh, that was my first concert experience, and it was a pretty small hole. Seeing in excess live on stage was a, an amazing experience, and I remember running into them at the grand opening of the uh, Hard Rock Cafe in Sydney. Being a young stupid teenager, I wanted to touch one of the guys. So, and, but I didn't end up touching. I actually poked him. Uh, it was the guy that plays the sax, and he just looked at me, gave me the dirtiest look, and made me feel like ten inches tall. So I never. <laughs> ever since. You've
0: never poked a rock star ever since. <laughs> <laughs> now, give me the Give me the uh, favorite Aussie film.
1: So it's not the greatest film in the world. But I think it's one of the best cinematic Australian films ever made, and that was Razorback.
0: Somewhere in the Australian outback, he's waiting. Something big
1: scared him away.
0: Like what? I don't know. But it was huge as big as a rhino the american animal campaigner who got more than the story she bargained for and the crazed brothers who protected their own there. secrets at all costs you ask too many bloody questions
1: you know that godless vermin She's
0: only got two states of being
1: dangerous are dead razorback Woo-hoo, the killer pig <laughs> the killer pig <laughs> out of the middle of nowhere <laughs> like we'll, we'll have a
0: clip from that now yep <laughs> Oh, nothing scarier than a killer pig. <laughs> you,
1: like, the, the, what's crazy about that is, this is something I learned during film school, is like the cinematography, like there was always a word we use is painting with light. Like a good cinematographer doesn't shoot things, he paints with light. Razorback is a movie that is some of the best cinema, Australian iconic cinematography it has ever been put to film. Nice. I'm not telling you it's the best made film, story wise, but you want to talk about an amazing looking Australian film, that is one of them.
0: Nice. All right, everyone, watch Labyrinth first, then watch Razorback.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there's a double. There's a there's a double uh, a double header right there.
0: So yeah, so Chicago's where they'll be at,
1: and then we'll uh, be. Uh, also appearing at the Houston Arcade Expo that is on the November 10th, 11th, and 12th. Again, we'll have another four to five games on the floor over there as we keep cranking these games out.
0: Nine. And Is there a limit to the numbers you're going to make?
1: The limit on this game is we're going to do 1,000 worldwide. But I should say we have enough parts to build 1,100 of these games, but we expect to lose some of them in progress, as in shipping.
0: <laughs> and dropping screws, um,
1: yeah. yeah. And dropping screws.
0: <laughs> now, distributors are to be announced, I understand. Can people contact you on your website for an early expression of interest?
1: 100%. So the website will go live the day that we release the teaser. Yep. And uh, they will be able to go to collectfun.com. And collect is spelt with a K. So it's K-O-L-L-E-C-T-F-U-N.com. They know why people can't find us.
0: Yeah, there you go. But they will. The final pricing will be announced and people can go on and uh, have a chat to you. Uh, we'll be looking up on YouTube. On YouTube, will it be your page's own uh, YouTube channel with Bowen's preview? Or where are people going to be able to find that soon?
1: So it will be on our own YouTube channel. We will also will be sharing this through the Henson social medias as well. And all good distributors that want to share this stuff, we will definitely be working with them. So you will have the opportunity to buy directly from us, but we are also will be working with distributors in key locations because at the end of the day, people have to have confidence that we're going to support our game. And when we're doing a 12-month warranty on our game is we need to have distributors that will look after their customers. That is number one to us. We have to supply our distributors with parts and games. And when something goes wrong, that we know that these distributors will stand behind these games and also will help the customers make sure their games are up and running. And that's one thing that's really important to us. Like We could be just slamming games into boxes to get these out, and that's not what we do here again the number one thing me and brian have set out to do is to make the best collectible pinball machine we possibly can so if a game comes down that line and something is wrong it will go right back to the line we're not going to put it into the box close enough is not good enough but like as all pinball collectors whoever has bought a pinball machine you literally can move one pinball machine that's in perfect condition into another room and it's going to go nuts so that's where customer support is important so we're not looking for distributors that want to just drop ship and not deal with their customers we were looking for distributors that give their customers the support they need to be long-term customers because we're not successful unless our customers are happy and you know in the same ways to our distributors if we can't make our distributors happy we're not going to be successful this is all something that we all got to win at this and the only way to do that is to work together.
0: All right, David, I'll let you get some sleep over there.
1: I'm awake now. I was literally falling asleep. <laughs> All, right, mate. All right, man. I'm going to do good it. Night. Good on ya. Thank you. See ya.
0: Cheers. So there you have it. Pinball operator, stuntman, cruise ship video producer, right up to pinball employee and now pinball company owner and manufacturer of a brand new game. For those of you attending either Expo or Houston Expo, jump on the game. Hopefully the lines aren't too long. Have a look at it. See what you think. I know I'm excited that mine's coming over, and I think you will enjoy it. Thanks again to David for all his time. And remember, all feedback is welcome. podcast at gmail.com if you want to give any feedback. Catch up with Bowen's tutorial as soon as you can. It's worth it. Thanks for listening. I'll leave you with a bit of dance magic dance from the one and only David Bowie. Bye for now.
1: You remind me of the babe.
0: What babe?
1: with the power. Power of voodoo. Voodoo. Do what? Remind
0: me the babe.
1: I saw my baby crying for the space.
0: What could I do?